those justified by faith in Christ can never outsin God's grace. Christians can never outsin God's grace. That statement sums up the, the triumph of God's grace in Christ over the reign of sin and death in Adam that we studied last week. And specifically, Paul ended that section by saying the law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's grace is so vast and so expansive and so strong and infinite that not only can, but it will triumph over the very worst of sins and even the greatest quantity of sins possible in the life of a true Christian. Where sin multiplied, grace in Christ multiplied even more. Isn't that good news? That is good news. But that good news raises an obvious question. And it's one that Paul was very familiar with. And he addresses it head on at the start of chapter six. In verse one, he says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? The logic, the logic of the, the question goes something like this. If believers are justified and saved only by faith in the grace of Christ, if that's completely independent of works, and we really can, as Christians, never out-sin God's grace, then doesn't the gospel promote sin? Doesn't it encourage people to think to themselves, wow, I have a free pass. I, I can sin all that I want to. I, I can still be forgiven and go to heaven instead of hell. And, and God is even glorified as he shows me more grace. It just seems like a win, win, win. Now, my assumption about most of you here today is that you would not answer that question positively. You'd say emphatically, no, Christians should not go on sinning. But I have a second assumption, and that is that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we've justified sin in our life at different points in time with a very similar mindset. Isn't that true? Our flesh, it is so cunning and deceptive that it will take even the glorious reality of grace and twist it into an excuse to sin. This question that Paul asks in verse 1, it is so important to a right understanding of the gospel and walking with Christ that Paul, he's going to spend chapters 6 through 8 addressing it. And before we dive into his response, I want you to take a moment and consider how you would respond to that question right now. With your current understanding, if someone says, says to you, should Christians continue sinning? How would you respond? If you say no, then why not? I hope you all have a, a general response in your mind. And I want you to mentally note your answer and see how it compares with how the, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to answer the question. To work through Paul's response in our passage, we're going to break it into two main points. We're going to look at the portrayal of grace and the power of grace. If you're taking notes, that's the portrayal of grace and the power of grace. For our first main point, listen again to today's big question and Paul's immediate response to it. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul sounds offended by the very thought. And his short but strong response, it shows that he thinks anyone seriously asking this question has totally misunderstood the gospel of grace. So should Christians continue to sin? Absolutely not. But why not? Why shouldn't, continue, why shouldn't Christians continue in sin? And my guess is that most Christians, including most of you here today, as you thought about answering that question, 
My guess is that your mind immediately went to how destructive and empty sin is. Now, why would a Christian want to live or abide in sin? It's ugly and shameful. It leads to death. Now, if you answered that way, you're not wrong. Your response is true and it's relevant. And Paul himself, he's going to mention those aspects of sin at the end of chapter 6. But what I want you to see today in our passage is that there is a deeper reason why Christians should not sin. Romans 6, 1 through 2 again. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. Why not, Paul? How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we believers who have died to sin still live in it? The word continue in this verse, it contains the Greek word meno, which is the word for abide or remain or live in. And so the idea here is ongoing, deliberate, unbroken, unrepentant sin. And Paul here and throughout the New Testament, he views this as an impossibility. It's impossible for a Christian to perpetually pursue and be comfortable in sin. And the reason Paul gives us here for that impossibility is that true believers have died to sin. Christians have died to sin. But what does that mean? Well, it may be helpful for some of you to rule out what it doesn't mean right away. It does not mean that sin is dead in terms of its presence within us as believers and its ability to tempt us. Paul in verse 12 assumes that true believers still experience sinful desires and temptations and that believers can act on those desires. The believers can sin. And in chapter sin, or I'm sorry, in chapter sin, in chapter seven, Paul, sins on, sins on my mind this morning. In chapter seven, Paul, he actually, he gives us this intimate window into his own struggle with sin as a believer, the apostle Paul. So dying to sin does not mean believers will no longer be tempted or cannot fall into sin. But what does it mean? Well, to explain it to us, Paul, he interestingly directs our attention to baptism. Verses two through three now. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In Paul's mind, died to sin. He wants us to, to connect that right away with being baptized into Christ's death. There seems to be two reasons that Paul references baptism here. First, the New Testament assumes that believers will be baptized because Jesus commands it as a conscious mark of identification with him. And so in light of that, the New Testament closely associates conversion with baptism in many places. They're almost used at times interchangeably, even though the act of baptism itself has no saving power. This is one of the reasons why as a church we've shifted and we, we've decided to encourage people to be baptized before they begin to take communion. And we think that fits the picture of both of those ordinances. The baptism, it, it's a picture and symbolic of, of when someone comes to faith in Christ, what happens there. And communion, it's, it's for the church. It's what believers do as they come together to remember the gospel. And so it is appropriate then for the church to expect someone who claims to be a Christian to have actually publicly identified with Christ, to have demonstrated that they, they actually are willing to submit to Christ and obey him. If, if any of you here are Christians, you really know Christ, but you haven't been baptized, I'm so glad you're here. And I, I would encourage you to, to ask yourself this morning, why haven't you been baptized? You know, in our culture, I think in Christian culture now, it, it's easy, I think, for people to, to say, well, since baptism doesn't save, it's not a big deal. 
And that is not the impression you get as you read scripture at all. And for the last 2,000 years, baptism, it has been a, it's been a decisive moment. It's been a turning point for many people as they wrestle with, am I going to take Christ seriously? Am I actually going to take his commands seriously? And so again, if you're here and you know Jesus and you haven't been baptized, I'd, I'd encourage you to talk to me. Talk to somebody here you know and figure out some steps towards obeying Jesus in that important way. Now, second, and I believe the most important reason that Paul brings up baptism is that physical baptism, it's a vivid enactment of what happened to every single believer upon their conversion. Now, Paul, he says that believers have been baptized in to Christ's death. He says that in both verses three and four. Then in verse five, he says that believers have been united with Christ in the likeness of his death. He adds in verse six that our old self was crucified with him. And then most clearly, Paul says in verse eight, believers have died with Christ. Believers have died with Christ. Therefore, Paul's argument is that believers have died to sin because we have died with Christ. Now, how is that possible? <laughs> how have we died with Christ? All of us here this morning are alive. At least I hope so. <laughs> my, my preaching has put people to sleep before, but I don't, as far as I know, it's never killed anybody. So we're all alive. And Jesus, he died over 2,000 years ago. So how can Paul, how can he say that we died with Christ? Well, remember the concept of Adam as our federal head from chapter five last week? Federal heads or covenant heads, they have the authority to act in such a way that their decisions impact all those that they represent, both for good and for bad. Like a king, the impact that, that he has on his subjects when he declares war on another nation. And so because Adam was our federal or covenant head of humanity, when he sinned, all humanity sinned. But as believers, we died in Christ's death. His death is our death, since by faith, Jesus is our new covenant head. You've probably heard people say that Jesus died so that we could live, and that's true. But it's even more accurate to say that Jesus died so that we could die in him, so that we could live. This is what, what Paul goes on to say in verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him, with Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the, the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Here, Paul, he completes the picture of baptism and the way it portrays the grace of God. Believers in, in union with Christ through faith have died and they've been buried with him. And this is pictured in baptism by our immersion under the water, but we've also been raised with him to new life as visualized by our rising out of the water. Baptism then reminds us that Jesus voluntarily suffered and died for our sins to, to satisfy the wrath of God. And this is important because I think when, when non-Christians, often when they think about Christianity, I think often their perception, when they think about religion, they think about Christianity in particular, they think, Jesus came to give me a little bit better life. I'm not perfect. I have some moral, moral weaknesses and, and flaws. So Jesus, he wants to help me in those areas. He wants to get, give me a little bit better direction, a little bit better life. And so the, the image, I think, is that, you know, Jesus is offering whipped cream on top of your French silk pie, Parmesan cheese on top of your delicious pizza. He's just going to make you, who are already pretty good, a little bit better. And yet, when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, what you see is 
is God, he loves us. We're made in his image. He loves us. And yet when he looks at our life, the, the sin that corrupts our life, when he looks at our life, he says, that has to die. You have to die. That, that has to go away. That old life, that, that needs to be done with. And so as believers, when we think about the, the cross, it's right for us to think of all of our sins, even the many that may be multiplied in the future. It's right to think about those sins and marvel at God's love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All our sin, past, present, and future, Jesus bore on the cross as our perfect sacrifice. And then he was buried in the tomb for three days to confirm his death. After three days, though, Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, and his resurrection proved that the transaction was complete, that his sacrifice, it was accepted by the Father. And though he died for our sins, he rose sinless and with a, a glorified and perfected body. So where did our sins go? Have you ever thought about this before? Jesus was burying our sin on the cross, but those sins, they were gone on Easter morning. So what does that mean? Our sin, they were buried with Christ in the grave and they're never gonna rise again. They're never, they're never gonna come back to condemn us before God. We are righteous before God in Christ. And Jesus, his resurrection it proves that, that not only are we going to share in his physical resurrection someday, but it also allows us to share in his resurrection spiritually now, in the newness of, of life that God's grace brings. All of this incredible grace, it's portrayed in baptism. And Paul, he uses that picture to help explain what it means that believers have died to sin. So full circle, what does it mean that believers have died to sin? It means that we died with Christ. And because of that, the penalty of sin has been paid and the power of sin has been broken. The power of sin has been broken, specifically sin's power to rule over you. The ownership of, of sin in your life. Remember in Adam, we were slaves to sin. Non-Christians, they can, they can stop sinning in the sense that they can trade one sin for another sin, but they can't obey God from the heart. They, they, can't, they can't make real progress in righteousness, but through God's grace in Christ, we can obey from the heart. We can become more and more like Christ. We can begin to be transformed from the inside out. Paul, he's gonna explain this further in verses five through 10, but for now, let me share with you an illustration I came across recently that might help. Sin in Romans 5 through 8, it's described not just as individual rebellious actions, but as a cruel tyrant that along with death enslaves and rules over all human beings. And so I want you to imagine then a wicked and oppressive military regime that had complete control over a country. You know, it could make the subjects do whatever they pleased, treats, treats the subjects harshly and oppresses them. Now, that unarmed and, and poor citizenry in this illustration, they can never free themselves. They don't have the power in them themselves to fight back. And their only hope is a, a righteous external ruler invading with his army and crushing the wicked regime. Now, if, if that happened, if there was a stronger outside force that came in and, and drove, drove the wicked regime out, you know, crushed them, pushed them out of the capital, liberated the citizens from bondage, in that situation... The crushed, crushed evil army, if it was decisively beaten, 
It, didn't, it wouldn't have the power to regain the capital. It wouldn't have the power to, to regain control of the country. But the enemies that survived, the soldiers that survived, they could hide throughout the country and wage a guerrilla war to try and protest the rightful new ruler and their old subjects. In this way, the old regime, it might exercise control at times over part of the country, even though it had no hope of ever fully reigning again. And in the same way, those who have died to sin in Christ, we've had the power of sin decisively defeated in our lives. Not in the sense that sin is no longer present in our lives, or that it does not have the power to tempt and deceive you, but it means sin can no longer rule over you. Sin doesn't own you anymore. You don't have to sin. In Adam, you had to sin. You could not sin. In Christ, you don't have to sin. You don't have to continue in it. We died to sin when we were united to Christ's death by faith. And at the same time, we were raised to walk in newness of life with him. And this brings us to our second main point, the power of grace. The power of grace. Verses 5 through 10, they unpack verses 2 through 4 that we just looked at and explain in greater detail what it means to be dead to sin and raised to new life. In Christ. We're going to specifically focus on, on verses 5 through 7. Paul says, For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. If you're taking notes, underline the phrase, the old self was crucified. Our old self was crucified. Do you know what that phrase means? It means that if you are a Christian, your fundamental identity has changed. When someone becomes a Christian, your old self died. Your old self, it, it died. It was nailed to the cross through union with Christ, and you were born again. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. When it says the old, it's not specifically referring to our behavior, even though that does change over time as a result. What this is specifically talking about is your old self, your old identity, it's passed away and a new one has come. The, the reality that God recreates believers and gives them a new identity. It helps to answer the question that I bet most of you ask, have asked yourself before. And the question is this, which you is the real you? <laughs> which you is the real you? For example, is the real you the one that enjoys God's word? That loves to, to worship God and serve other, other believers? Is it the one that wants other people to be saved and just enjoys being close to God? Is that the real you? Or is the real you the one that moments later can lash out in anger toward your family or lie to save face or indulge in self-pity, to actually enjoy self-self-pity? Is it, is it the one who's still tempted regularly by lust? Which you is the real you? I remember after God got a hold of my life in college, there was a specific prayer time where I felt unusually close to God. And I remember praying like, God, I love you. I, I just want to follow you. I want to do whatever you want me to do. And I just stopped. And I thought to myself, is that even true? Can I honestly tell God I love him? Because I look at my life, there's all these areas, pride and, and lust and fear. There's all these areas where it's clear I don't, I don't love God there. 
I don't love him there. Can I really, can I honestly say that I love God as I look at, at some of the dysfunction of sin still in my life? Now, what's Paul teaching us? What's the answer? This was so liberating for me. Who is the true you? If you're a believer, the true you is the new you. <laughs> it's the new desires that you have, that you didn't have, to, that you didn't have before you came to Christ. It's the, the desire to know him and to honor him. That's the real you. When someone becomes a Christian, they become a new, a new person, not because they get a new body, at least not yet. What happens is you get a new heart. You get new desires. You get those from a new relationship that you have with God by his spirit. And then you're joined to a new spiritual family, which is the church. And so this is the most fundamental reason why Paul rejects the accusation that grace promotes sin. Grace doesn't promote sin. Grace, it turns sinners into new people with a new power over sin. That's what grace does. And as we continue to, to work through Romans 6 through 8, what we're going to see is that anyone who has been justified by the grace of God, someone who has really experienced the grace of God, it's that same grace is going to continue to work in them to sanctify them and to eventually glorify them. And so what you see in, in Romans as you study through it and as you look at the rest of the New Testament is that if someone has truly come to the God's grace, experienced God's grace in Christ, their life will change. Their life is going to change. A Christian who continues in unrepentant, perpetual sin, the New Testament says that that's not a, that's not a category that exists. That, that's a person who is, who is deceived in the way that they're viewing themselves. Look again at verse 6. It says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so we may, be, so we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you see that? If you're a Christian, sin no longer has enslaving power over your life. It's rule. It's complete control of you. It has been broken. And the question for you is, do you believe that? If you're a Christian, do you believe that you no longer have to sin? See, this is such good news for Christians, but it's part of the gospel that I think we can often overlook and even doubt. See, all of us have areas of sin we're more inclined toward, not only in our behavior, but also in, in terms of sinful attitudes like bitterness and anxiety or people-pleasing. And at times, our temptations and the sin we fall into, they can feel overpowering. They can feel like they control us, don't they? <laughs> so as Christians, we can slip into thinking there are, there are areas of sin in my life that are always going to beat me. There are places that, that I am stuck and I'm never going to change it. But that is a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And that's why Paul, he answers the question about should believers go on sinning, not by commanding us to stop sinning. He doesn't say, hey, stop sinning. Sinning's bad. Knock it off. That's not what he says. Instead, he begins by reminding us of Christ's victory over sin and our new identity in him. This is the way almost all the New Testament letters are written. Now, for example, we've, we've been studying Romans since last fall, and we're now in chapter 6. Guess how many commands there have been so far in Romans for us? Zero. <laughs> there, there have been no commands, and that's because what God commands us to do as believers is only possible when it's based on faith in what God has already done and what he promises to do in Christ. It's only possible by the power of grace. Here's a, here's a principle that, 
that expresses this reality. Your activity, it flows from your identity. Your activity, what you do, it flows from your identity. It flows from who you are. In other words, what you do over time, it's an expression of who you truly are. Let me share a a silly example that I I heard from a a friend for the first time over 20 years ago. And I've I've never forgot this. It hasn't hasn't left me. I want you to imagine that that everyone in the world is a cat. Everyone in the world is a, a cat. Okay, so there's no human beings. The world is ruled by cats, which is a pretty funny thought experiment because cats already think that they rule the world. Um, So everyone in the world is a cat with a cat nature, doing what cats do, so sleeping in the sun, drinking milk, freaking out over laser pointers, you know, the, the, the normal cat things. Now, in our thought experiment, imagine that a cat, we have one cat who hears and believes the gospel. What, what happens to our cat? Does he become a stronger cat, a bigger cat, or a better cat? No. He becomes a new creation. Our cat becomes a dolphin. <laughs> Our cat becomes a dolphin with a, to- a totally new nature that loves to swim and eat fish and, and do playful tricks to entertain others. And it's pretty hard to imagine a cat willingly trying to entertain <laughs> other people. And so you have a, a new creation, a dolphin. Now, could a cat swim in water if you threw it into the ocean? Could it swim in, swim in the ocean? For a little while, right? It, that cat, if you did it, it'll hate you for the rest of its life, and it's definitely not going to be doing any tricks for you. But here's my first point. Cats can't live in water. And this is one reason why non-Christians rarely stay for a long time in a healthy gospel-preaching church. They might be attracted to it. They might be attracted to to the people and the relationships there. um, But they also probably find the people weird. (laughs) they, They won't understand why Christians are so excited about church and reading the Bible and building our whole lives around Jesus because non-Christians, they don't want Jesus to be king over their whole life. They don't want, they want to remain in control. They, they want that authority. So a cat, it, it can't live like a dolphin long-term. It can't, it can't do it because of its nature. But the, the second point of the illustration, which, which fits Paul's main point in our section, is that just like a cat can't live in the ocean, a cat turned dolphin can no longer live on the land. Of course, a dolphin could jump on shore temporarily, but the longer it stays there, the more miserable it's going to become. You know, a cat turned dolphin can't consistently live a cat life anymore because it was given a new nature. It was created for the ocean. And so, brothers and sisters, I know this is a silly illustration, but the point is actually profound. You must embrace your new nature. You must embrace who you are in Christ. You're not a cat anymore. (laughs) You're a dolphin. (laughs) And that means that not only do you not have to sin, you don't have to do it. You also can no longer enjoy sin or perpetually live under its control the way you once did because of your new nature. Now, one of the reasons why this is, is so important to understand is that if you primarily view yourself as a sinner, you will expect to sin. If you primarily think about yourself as a sinner, then you're going to expect to sin. This is true even of believers. If Satan can deceive you and limit your understanding of salvation merely to forgiveness of sins rather than freedom from the power of sin, then when temptation comes, you're going to much likely surrender to it quickly. You're going to be much more quick to surrender 
to it. See, many, many Christians, they end up being discouraged after five or ten years. Because like we said last week with the iceberg, they, they actually become more and more and more aware of their sin. There's people who after 10, 15 years, they feel like I'm a worse person now than I was when I first became a Christian. At least that's what it feels like. And this can even lead to a subtle frustration and bitterness towards God because it feels completely unreasonable and even impossible the way God is commanding us to live. And this is why we have to follow Paul's path toward victory over sin. He doesn't begin with a, a pep talk about getting our act together and just trying harder not to sin. Instead, he wisely reminds believers of the new identity Christ has won for us. If you primarily view yourself as a sinner, you will expect to sin. But if you see yourself primarily as a new creation in Christ, then you're going to expect a new power to obey. Titus 2 points this out. It says that God's grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I love this verse. I, I try and remind myself of this verse when I'm tempted. I have the power by God's grace to say no to sin. I can say no to sin, not, not because of my own independent willpower, but because of my union with Christ. It's possible to, to begin to live a self-controlled and upright and godly life in the present age. Not just when you get to heaven, you can begin to live that way now. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Our effort is involved in sanctification, and we're going get, to get into that next week. But for today, I, I don't want us to miss the priority of what God is giving us in this section. The first priority is that we need to embrace our identity. You have to embrace your new identity as a believer by fighting to remember who you are. When I, when I think about this, I, I'm often reminded of the Lion King. You remember the Lion King? The Simba, he ran away from his identity. He did that because he was ashamed after his father's death. He was deceived by Scar. He thought it was all his fault. He thought his family would never accept him. So he, he, just, he runs away for years. And what's the turning point? Well, the turning point is when his father appears to him in a vision. And Mufasa says, he says, you've forgotten who you are, Simba. And so you've forgotten me. And the vision, it ends with Mufasa saying over and over again, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And that's the turning point. That's where, that's where Simba, he returns. He embraces his identity. And he goes and he has victory over his enemies. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to walk in victory over sin, we have to let the truths of the gospel soak into our souls. We have to remember who we are. Now, how do we do that? Well, we have to meditate long and often on our new God-given identity. One of the key words in this section is the word to know. In the Greek, it appears in verse 3, 6, and 9. And Paul, he refers in those verses to the gospel truths that he thinks believers need to know. You have to know these things. And this, this is related to the first command that Paul gives in the whole book of Romans in verse 11. Listen to this. First command. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love that that's the first, first command in this masterpiece of a book. It's not a command directed toward our physical activity, but it's, it's actually aimed at our minds towards our, our internal self-concept. And so the very first command in the whole book of Romans for Christians is how we are to think about ourselves. 
how does God want you to think about yourself if you're a Christian? Well, the Bible has lots to say about this, but if you limited it just to Romans chapter 5, it's quite a resume. Believers have peace with God through Christ. We stand in a grace that cannot be shaken before God, and we have the hope of eternal glory. We were loved by God when we were enemies and have been reconciled into his family in Christ, who is now our new federal head. And so because of Christ, we've been united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are now dead to sin, but alive to God. That's who you are if you're a Christian. You're dead to sin, but you are alive to God. We have a a new power in Christ to change. We don't have to sin. And this is why the devil desperately wants to deceive you about your identity or cause you to doubt it or at least distract you from it. Now, for most of you here, our problem is that we've never, our problem is not that we haven't heard this before. For most of us, it's that we don't reflect on it enough. Think about the challenge this way. Where in the world can you go and expect to be reminded of who you are? Where can you go to be reminded about what's true about you as a Christian? Are your, are your professors going to do it? Are your coworkers going to do it? Or your neighbors? Is Netflix going to remind you? Or ESPN? You see, for most of us, we could wake up and go to class or to work or to watch, watch the kids. And most days, we wouldn't have a single reminder of who we are in Christ if we did not intentionally stop and make time to get into God's word or to pray and remind ourselves of these truths. And so if, if you're only reading and meditating on, on God's word for a few minutes a week outside of church and Bible study, don't be surprised if you don't seem to be making much progress. We have died to sin, but as we're going to see next week, it's possible to live functionally as slaves to sin. It's possible to still live, live in our old desires. And so while the power of sin has been broken in our lives, we need to grow in experiencing that victory as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to let God change the way that we view him and ourselves and, and our temptations to sin. One of my favorite examples of this is, is a tea bag steep, seeping in water or steeping in water. I have a, a picture here of this. See, I'm, I am not a, a coffee drinker. I'm one of those freaks who doesn't really like coffee, but I, I like tea. And when I have a, a hot glass of, of water and I dip the tea bag into it, if you just do it a couple times, a little bit of the tea gets in there, but it looks like you just have dirty water, right? It's like, it doesn't look good. If you let it sit for about a minute, it starts to... to color the whole glass differently. And if you let it sit there for about five or 10 minutes in hot, hot water, then when you come back, there's this rich, dark color to the tea. And if you drink it, every drop, there's this strong flavor of the tea because it's had time to seep into the entire cup. See, this is what God wants us to do with the gospel. He wants us to, to soak in it. He wants us, us to let it, let it sink deep down into our souls. And as you do that, one of the things you discover is that the Christian life is not primarily about denying sin. Did you know that? That's a, an aspect of the Christian life. But the ultimate, the ultimate purpose of the, the Christian life is enjoying our deepest desires as they're met in Christ. That's what the Christian life is, is ultimately about God's commands, they're never in conflict with your true nature as a believer. Instead, God's commands show us how to consistently live out our new identity, which is why Paul says to us in Philippians 2, work out what God has worked in. Work out your salvation. 
In Ephesians 4, Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So there's still deceitful desires working in Christians. But he says, be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's who you are. That's who you are. You have a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And this ties then to our second application of this passage, the second priority, which is that believers are not only to remember who we are, we're to learn to live out who we are. We have to remember who we are, but then we have to learn to live out that new identity. Verse 13, that as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Notice Paul says, as those who are alive from the dead. That's who you are. And so because of who you are, now offer yourselves to God. Paul, he's, he's saying, be who you are, Christian. Be who you are. That's what Paul is urging us to do. And it's important that we realize this is a lifelong process. It's similar to a, a child learning to walk or someone learning a new language. The, the capability, it's already within us as believers because of our, our union with Christ but we must learn how to walk in it. Now, if you want to learn how to live out your new identity, you're going to have to come back next week. We're going to talk about that more next week. But fittingly, look at how Paul, he ends his initial response to the question of should we as Christians continue in sin? Should Christians continue in sin? Paul says in verse 14, for sin will not rule over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. This isn't a command. This is a promise. It's a promise that those who've been saved by God's grace will not be ruled and controlled by sin. And don't miss the basis for this promise. It's because believers are not under the law, but we're under grace. That's the reason why sin won't rule you. Unbelievers are under the law in Adam, and they're ruled by sin because the law cannot change your heart. The law can't change your heart. Those who reject Christ, they have to seek to to make themselves acceptable before God by their own performance. And that makes our motivation to obey God either motivated by fear of punishment or by self-righteousness, a a desire to to save, save ourselves, exalt ourselves. The law can never change our hearts. But believers are not under the law. We're under grace which means we're not going to be judged by the law. We're going to be judged by grace. We're judged in Christ with his perfect righteousness. And so what that does for us, church, is it it actually puts us into a place with totally new motivations. We don't have to obey God out of fear. We don't have to obey God to try and impress other people. Christians are under grace, which means you've tasted God's grace. You've experienced God's grace, and no sin can compare to that. Even the good things in this life, none of it compares how sweet it is to walk with God, to experience the grace of God. And so this is why Paul says, grace never promotes sin. Grace never promotes sin. It's actually the only path to breaking sin's power in your life. And if you've tasted God's grace, Paul actually promises, you will have victory. You are going to have victory. And you're going to have that victory in Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for just how how incredible the gospel is and, again, how dynamic it is and and relevant to our lives. Lord, this is a truth I think I I often neglect to emphasize. And I, I pray for us as a church that you'd give us a deeper conviction of who we are in you. 
Help us to, to not be deceived. Lord, you say that you've saved us from the empty way of life handed down by our forefathers. Thank you that we don't have to be controlled by that. We don't have to go back to that. that it no longer has to rule us. So we thank you, God, that we can expect to have greater victory over sin. God, I pray, especially for those who feel defeated by sin right now, who maybe have felt distant from you, I pray, God, that you would refresh them by your love, that you'd put just new, new energy into their souls and a confidence, God, that there, there's hope, Lord, to change in, in this life in you. So God, we ask you to take these truths and apply them to, to each heart here in the different places that we're at. And I pray this all in your great name. Amen. We're going to continue now with the offering. <laughs>